that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Condominium development is dramatically shaping the urban landscapes of Canadian cities. Is condo ownership offering women newfound freedom and financial independence? And should this form of urban development and ownership be celebrated? On the program, Leslie Kern, I'll be discussing uh, her new book, Sex in the Revitalized City, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship, here on The City. Stay with us. And Dr. Leslie Kern is professor, she's assistant professor of gender studies at uh, Mount Allison University, and she's the author of uh, her 2010, um, 2010 book, and that's called Sex in the Revitalized City, uh, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship. And I caught up with uh, Dr. Leslie Kern um, back in uh, June, I believe, um, of this year, and had a really um, uh, engaging and, and quite interesting conversation around uh, condo development. Um, she talks specifically her her research is around Toronto and uh, the remaking of the Toronto um, urban landscape, uh, really um, to a large extent by uh, private uh, condo development by developers. And so she really unpacks the ways that private developers and uh, municipal officials, politicians, um, policymakers, planners. Um, and and women themselves um, as a consumer of um, this form of um, inner city um, ownership, property ownership, um, really all how all of these um, people come together, actors come together in a way um, to really um, shape the outcome of of what what uh, what we're seeing in, in not only places like Toronto but. Uh, places like Vancouver and places like uh, Montreal and all over North America, New York City um, as well, and also throughout suburbs as well, as we see places like Surrey um, see an incredible amount of um, condo development as well, taking a variety of different forms. So she really unpacks a lot of these different issues um, and also questions whether this is a form of of um, freedom and emancipation um, in a feminist sense and really uh, challenges some assumptions about condo ownership um, as it as it's marketed um, 
and um, as it's really the things, the positive things that it's argued to provide. So without any uh, further uh, commentary, uh, let's get right into that conversation. This is Dr. Leslie Kern. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me. No worries. Okay. So I just wanted to I'll jump right in and um, at any point... Um, feel free to take things in a different direction or the discussion if um, if it suits you. Um, but I want to start out by asking you, um, really, what were the main issues and questions that you intended to address um, in your book, Sex and the Revitalized City, or your research on gender, urban restructuring, and condominium development? Great. Um, yeah, I guess the first main question that I, I wanted to take on that was really sparked I guess by um, the billboards and newspaper articles and so on that I was noticing about condos in the city of Toronto in the late 90s was this idea that somehow condominiums were going to be a kind of emancipation or liberation for women in the city. That was sort of a lot of this hyped up rhetoric about uh, condos being great for women and women taking over the city with condos. And as a social scientist, I wanted to sort of go beyond the soundbite, right, and figure out well, why are condominiums being positioned in this way, but also how does that really play out in people's everyday lives? And then I guess on another level, I was also really interested to figure out why condominiums were so uh, successful as a real estate option at that particular moment in time, um, although that boom has continued for for many years and, and continues to this day, and then sort of what role gender and ideas about uh, gender roles for men and women were playing into that condo boom, trying to figure out what kinds of, you know, economic, environmental, and social needs were ostensibly being filled by condominiums, and then sort of figuring out what kinds of effects this massive wave of condo development might have on um, women's lives in the city, but also sort of the everyday social world of the city in terms of how people interact with one another, how people come to recognize sort of their fellow citizens, who belongs, who's excluded, those sorts of questions. So how did you go about looking at some of these questions? Um, for me, I'm always really interested in the ways that people actually talk about and frame their lives, right? So actually sitting down and speaking to people so in terms of addressing this question around, well, how do women actually experience life in a condominium? Is it all about liberation? You know, What are their reasons for buying a condo, living in the city, and so on? I decided that I wanted to speak to women condominium owners, so I conducted interviews with uh, many women who were, uh, for the most part, quite new condo owners who were taking part in this boom. I also wanted to hear from the condominium developers themselves or sort of the representatives of, of the corporations because they were playing a big part in sort of shaping this discourse. There were editorials written by developers. Of course, all of their advertising was saturating the city. So I wanted to speak to them and find out what they thought the role of condos was in the city, why they thought condos were being so successful, and uh, why they thought women were um, being part of this boom. And uh, I also spoke to a couple of city planners to sort of get the kind of municipal and policy angle to see how the city of Toronto was actually um, attempting to accommodate, manage, control, negotiate this um, new wave of 
building that was going on. And then beyond that, I was interested, you know, in how condos were being advertised and presented, uh, marketed to us as a city. So I began collecting tons and tons of condo ads. I was piling up condo ad magazines in my apartment and, you know, flipping through them, finding, um, you know, ads that talked about condos in terms of their benefits of home ownership and in, uh, ones that also particularly portrayed gender or relationships or uh, women in various poses being used to sell condos and those sorts of things. And I also went around the city with my camera and took lots of pictures of new condo developments and um, their billboards and um, public advertising and so on as well. So um, I guess I sort of had this several-pronged approach to trying to build up this picture of uh, the ways in which condos were being presented and, you know, why, in fact, it was it was such a successful real estate option at that time. Before we uh, discuss um, a lot of the findings and um, aspects of, of what you discovered through your work, can you situate um, all of this within um, urban change within Toronto and the gentrification in the inner city and all of these um, redevelopment and, and um, speculative pressures uh, occurring within the downtown? Yeah, absolutely. So um, gentrification is really not new in Toronto. Um, scholars have been noticing and, and talking about it in the city since the late uh, 1970s and the early 80s and a couple of the sort of um, early neighborhoods to undergo gentrification, places like Yorkville and Cabbage Town sort of undergoing what we would understand, I guess, as a more traditional form of gentrification where areas that are inhabited by either um, working class residents, artists, students, lower income people um, are gradually, the, the housing stock is gradually bought up by middle class homeowners. The housing stock is renovated. Um, it goes up in price. Property values rise. New businesses come into the neighborhood. The character of the neighborhood is transformed. And often those um, original or longer time residents might be displaced as well to other neighborhoods if they can no longer afford to live there. So that form of gentrification is not new in Toronto and it continues to this day. Everybody can tell you about a, a neighborhood that they've lived in or, or know about that's being gentrified. Um, with condominiums, we, what we see is this kind of new build gentrification that you know, we'll go on and talk more about later. But just to go back to more of the context, um, I think we, we would also note that in Toronto, um, there's been a uh, fairly long time trend, at least probably since the 1970s, for the, uh, the downtown core, what might be called the inner city in other areas, um, those neighborhoods have been increasing in household income levels. So the research of David Falchansky at <coughs> the Center for Urban and Community Studies at, at U of T has been showing these, these trends where the downtown areas are becoming sort of the higher priced, higher income areas, well, what we would call the the inner suburbs of Toronto, so like North Etobicoke, Scarborough, um, some areas of North York, those areas have seen decreasing income levels. So what we have is this sort of um, a fairly middle class or, or wealthy and stable core with sort of rings of lower income and, and poverty around it. So the downtown area has um, both experienced gentrification and also just had a really stable kind of middle class homeowning base. 
Um, let's see, at the same time around Toronto, we also know that there has been um, ongoing trends of suburbanization, right? So stable middle-class core, but also lots of pressure to develop outside the city. So we know that some of the um, the urban urbanized, now suburban areas around Toronto have populations approaching um, a million in the case of Mississauga, right, and that sprawl has been heading both east, west, and north and pushing into um, ecologically sensitive areas and so on. So we've had this long time um, suburbanization trend that uh, condos are kind of a bit of a reaction to, and we can talk more about that later as well. So I guess just to you know, bring us more up to date. So the sort of approach to redevelopment that we see beginning in the mid-90s with things like condominiums was not really being fueled by a sense that there was, like, a problem with downtown. Like, downtown wasn't crumbling or crime-ridden or abandoned or seemed to be sort of a, a lower-income area, as we might see in, say, some American cities. But... Um, more the redevelopment is an attempt to kind of recapitalize on the attraction of downtown living that's always been there for a large segment of Toronto's upper and middle classes, right? So just trying to really build upon that. Um, of course, we know that cities um, facing a lot of financial pressures in the 90s and feeling the need to boost their property tax bases, right, to boost the numbers of homeowners essentially paying into the city coffers and the of declining revenues from industry, and also the fact that um, municipalities have had to take on responsibility for uh, various social services and forms of infrastructure as they've been kind of downloaded from the federal and provincial levels, right? So cities facing this kind of financial pressure needing to boost their revenue streams and so on. So I think that is kind of a bit of the background context for um, gentrification in general and some of the, the build-up to, um, to the redevelopment that we start to see in the 90s. And, and what's the City of Toronto's um, approach been to this? And, and can you sort of lay a, a foundation of how, um, on the regulatory side and the planning side, um, how that fits into um, the uh, essentially a reimagining of the downtown as a condominium landscape? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So I would say there's um, a few different kind of policy uh, angles that are playing out here. So one would be, I guess, around um, environmental issues and concerns about sprawl. So this concern with suburbanization and the building of housing in ecologically sensitive areas such as the Oak Ridges Moraine and, and so on. So there's been provincial legislation like the Greenbelt Act that ostensibly protects um, a long uh, sort of swath of land that includes an agricultural land but also, um, you know, there's other types of, of ecosystems and so on. So the Greenbelt Act kind of uh, creates this buffer zone where development is supposed to stop or slow down to a large extent, so it's slowing down sprawl. And then there's also provincial legislation called the Places to Grow Act, which kind of takes a province-wide approach to seeing which areas of the province can kind of um, handle increasing uh, population and a kind of increasing density, both of, of um, residents, industry, um, employment spaces, and so on. So uh, those are kind of two provincial acts that are sort of trying to direct growth essentially into a more urban format and to limit sprawl. 
In terms of the City of Toronto itself, in terms of its planning and policy, the City of Toronto produced a new official plan in 2002. And this was definitely a, a plan that had what the city calls reurbanization at its core, right? So again, an attempt to sort of rein in some of the, the sprawl, but also to find places within the urban fabric where there's space for um, primarily residential growth, right? And uh, part of the vision behind this is a sense, well, sure, it makes sense to take advantage of existing infrastructure, whether that's hard infrastructure like, you know, roads and water and so on, but also social infrastructure like schools and hospitals and those sorts of spaces. Um, but also, I guess, a, a sort of cultural push to try to revalue urban living to promote the city as um, a livable place where you can have a high quality of life, um, where you can experience, you know, great culture, good food, shopping, places to work, uh, green spaces, all of these kinds of things. So a kind of revisioning of the city as this very livable landscape. And I think also a bit of an articulation with some of the creative city discourse as well. So trying to attract sort of young professional workers to the city who are going to be part of the knowledge economy, right? Kind of propelling this sort of post-industrial urban economy forward. Um, so those are some of the, I think, the specific policy um, frameworks that have been shaping urban revitalization. Do you think the City of Toronto, in its official planning documents um, and the, just their policy language or discourse um, in general, was really pushing for specifically um, um, ownership tenure in the inner city or the downtown, or was it really trying to read this idea of reurbanization um, for anyone regardless of, of tenure, whether rental or owner-occupied? Or was there an explicit push for um, condominium or strata? Um, that's a really good question. It's been a while since I poured over those documents, and I, I believe that they do suggest that there could be a variety of, of housing tenure forms that are part of this reurbanization. Uh, but the new official plan, I, I believe, does mention specifically condominiums as one way of uh, helping to encourage reurbanization. And um, I think what, what has, whether or not the, the sort of policy documents lay out a kind of preference for home ownership, what has sort of been enacted on the ground is, is the fact that in order for developers to want to build rental buildings, they tend to require or request a fair amount of subsidy from the city because it takes a longer time for developers to see a profit return on rental buildings than it does um, than condominium buildings. And so if the city is unwilling or unable to provide those kinds of subsidies for rental, then um, the condominium market is sort of seen as, as the best place for developers to be in terms of actually getting a reasonably quick turnaround on their, you know, investment in the in the construction and design of the building and so on. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly see the there's the policy intent and whether this can be realized when it's um, largely a, a market driven process of redevelopment um, 
it, it I think it begs the question of whether an idea of an inclusive, um, you know, residential intensification can be achieved through um, a variety of tenures. And I, I would bring this also back to Vancouver and say that um, it, it largely cannot be uh, achieved largely through through the market. So, anyways. I want to no, make, not without yeah. a, a lot of commitment to either maintaining existing um, subsidized housing uh, to, maintain, uh, you know, having sort of rent control in place that um, could retain affordability for rental buildings um, and, and those sorts of things. So I think you're probably right about mm-hmm. that. I want to move um, to some other questions more around gender um, in the city. And I want to ask you how how gender is implicated in a lot of these um, processes of urban change and um, and and gentrification and development um, and maybe relate this back to some of um, the the specific stories and and um, uh, discourses or or um, commentaries that emerged from your research. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. So in trying to figure out, okay, what was really behind this message around, um, you know, women's emancipation and so on, I wanted to sort of unpack that a little bit more and find out, well, what exactly is it about condominiums that are supposed to be appealing for women? Why are developers uh, targeting this particular uh, demographic as part of their market? And these sorts of things. So I was sort of asking questions both of developers and condo owners to try to get at this a little bit more to find out, well, you know, are ideas about gender actually informing this process in any way? Because I think we tend to think of things like city building as being sort of, you know, based around economic processes but having less to do with sort of social and cultural factors. So some of the things that I, I found that I think relate to the ways in which gender is implicated in these processes, uh, one of which is sort of uh, fairly entrenched notions about a kind of natural or expected heterosexual life course, if you will, right? So a kind of assumption that you know people move from their parents' homes to university or, or education or shared living of some sort to, you know, the rental market as a, as a single person um, and then moving towards home ownership and eventually marriage, children, retirement. Um, and gender is implicated in that in terms of assumptions about what women will want at particular points in that life course, right? And so condominiums, for example, are sort of positioned in, in this, you know, the, the discourse that I was looking at this time as kind of this um, solution to the fact that women are waiting later uh, to get married and to have children, right? So sort of an increasing average age of marriage and, and, and children. Um, so you kind of need some kind of housing option in between the university dorm or the rental apartment building and the suburban single-family home, right? You need an option that kind of fits in there. And so condominiums were kind of being pushed as this kind of, you know, starter home for single people or maybe for, you know, very sort of young couples that could sort of fit that niche, right, and kind of 
dovetail with these um, trends that are going on in terms of women's life choices, right, to wait for marriage and, and to pursue um, a career and, and professionalization before getting to that. Um, I think also dovetailing with that is some new-ish, I wouldn't say they're entirely new, but maybe they were um, experiencing resurgence, kind of cultural narratives about women's women taking pleasure in big city living, right? So obviously the title of my book is kind of hinting at the sex in the city phenomenon, right, where the characters in that TV show are very much in love with the city that they live in, right, and it forms a major backdrop to their life and they can't imagine being anywhere else. And so shows like that and other cultural products of the time were kind of re-promoting the city as a place for for women to... um, find pleasure, to uh, have friendships, to work, to to enjoy, and so on. Um, I also found in the course of my research that, that um, developers in particular were quite happy to sort of roll out some, some stereotypes about women's need for financial security. So some of them suggested to me that women were naturally more inclined to want to uh, like build a nest egg kind of thing in order to, you know, protect themselves and their future family. And so being able to buy a condominium at a, you know, in their 20s or early 30s or something like that was a way for them to start building this nest egg, whereas, you know, they suggested that men at that age were still more immature and, and weren't thinking about the future yet, but that women were, you know, more inclined naturally to be thinking about the future. And so condos, you know, kind of work for that, and they were able to to push that aspect, the financial security aspect, to women as consumers. And I think one other thing that, that came out quite a lot, particularly from the developers, was a sense that women liked condos because they were um, seen as secure and safe, right? So in order to kind of get women to want to live downtown, in high-rise living and so on, there was a perception that they needed to overcome a kind of perception of danger in in the city. And even though Toronto, I don't think, is generally perceived as a very dangerous city, overall, there's still this idea that, well, if you want the women to come, you have to sort of present to them this safe and secure living space. And so things like the 24-hour concierge slash security guards, uh, fancy alarm systems, you know, key card entry, biometric handprint, door locks, these kinds of things were, were available in many of the new buildings that were sort of supposed to make women feel comfortable in this in this new living space. So those are just some of the kind of uh, gender-influenced ideas that I think were shaping this particular kind of uh, new build gentrification that I, I, I was seeing in my research. Yeah, I can't help but uh, in in reading through some of um, the excerpts or the um, uh, quotations from uh, some of your interviews, uh, really, I think security and safety came up a lot, but in many ways it almost reflected sort of a, a suburban or a neo-suburban um, preference for safety and security and to kind of close yourself off from in many ways what I, I would attribute to like the joys of living in the city, right? To not be so much mm-hmm. in in this sort of privatized, um, pri- you know, privatopia, as, as some scholars have called it, and um, to seal
lives in condominiums to sort of uh, keep these happening as viable living spaces, or are we potentially going to see condominiums transform into a form of sort of low-income housing over time um, with, uh, with their values going down and maybe having to be rented out and, and those sorts of things. So there's long-term questions about the sustainability of these as a living space, right? But like other things in the built environment, they're durable. They're going to be around for a really long time. So um, it remains to be seen whether all of these kinds of spaces will remain full and what kinds of people will live in them or whether... You know, can they adapt, for example, to changing demographics or to changing lifestyle desires and, and needs? And those are questions that really were not at all being discussed, I think. I thought there was a, yeah, I thought there was a fascinating um, contradiction in, in um, what you discovered in your research, this idea of the condominium as marketed as a form of community, um, but because it's seen um, often primarily as a financial asset, um, it kind of implicitly has um, a very transient transient population, right? People who are only there for their uh, 20s and 30s while they want to live in um, the downtown core. And then at that point when they have, you know, their family, if they're following this um, this life trajectory, um, they're going to move out of the city. And, and is that actually a stable way and a, a good way um, to develop uh, the downtown, and are you ever going to establish um, forms of, you know, of uh, social connection and community that you might have if you build other forms of housing and, and with other mixes of tenure? So I think it raises a number of questions, and I think for me that that's what came out quite strongly in in a lot of the the tales that uh, were presented. Is it's is this really the community that uh, that is being sold sold to us? Absolutely, absolutely, and, and the ways in which uh, neighborhoods are kind of sold to condo buyers is a very kind of superficial version of the neighborhood. Like, you don't really like to live here because there's coffee shops and restaurants and yoga studios, not you'll really like to live here because there's a great community center and schools and, you know, local activists or what have mm-hmm. you, so... Uh, what is being sold as community is really kind of actually just amenity, right? Mm-hmm. It's not uh, that sort of more, I guess, inclusive or kind of deeper sense of community, as you say, that's built upon social connections that develop over time and a shared sense of place and and values and uh, you know community connectedness that, yeah, is not necessarily likely to um, be facilitated by condominium living in terms of, first of all, this kind of high-rise, you know, looking at a glass window from the 40th story kind of living, and, and also just that, that sense that the condo is sort of this vehicle of investment that people anticipate, as soon as they buy it, they're anticipating its sale. Now, did any of the planning staff that you talked to in your interviews um, acknowledge this contradiction, that these may not be... Um, the best ways for cities to foster community and forms of social solidarity and and community connections. Yeah, and the planners were definitely dealing with, I guess, some of the more mundane um, ways in which that actually plays out in the cities. And for example, all of these new condominiums being developed, and then people realizing that there's no grocery store mm-hmm. in the area in which 
they've been developed, and so planners are kind of playing catch up. All of this development is happening, and then they're the ones that are being left to try to fill in some kind of, you know, social infrastructure, right, to um, provide, for example, a school that, that might need to be built if, in fact, um, young families locate there, or daycare centers, or healthcare services, or uh, transportation services to to meet these needs. So it's kind of like they're, you know, building, developers are building the condominiums, but then it's left to the city to then figure out how to integrate those buildings into the neighborhood in, in any kind of a real way. And as I say, that kind of plays out sometimes in, in these very everyday problems of, you know, where can you get... Um, a carton of milk that's not from the convenience store on the corner. So the planners were definitely concerned about that, and they were also concerned, um, as I said before, about the kind of long-term sustainability of building hundreds of thousands of units of housing that are designed for one type of household, right, as opposed to housing that could be um, adaptable or uh, suit the needs of people at different stages in their life course. I want to ask you, um, as we just wrap up here, to maybe reflect on what you think some of the political implications are um, by seeing um, the the downtown landscape um, increasingly become one that is the the growth is determined um, by private developers and. I think also realizing, I think it, it questions what is the role of the planner um, and are planners actually planning and helping to shape cities for people or are they taking a backseat to developers? But I guess my question is politically, if, if this is um, the, the form and um, the trajectory of, of the inner city or the downtown, does this pose political questions about what the city um, is to look like and, and how it is to be governed and, and who governs it. I, I mean, reflecting on the Rob Ford saga, it raises questions as, is condominium ownership in this landscape and this very privatized notion of what the city is, is it in many ways, um, does it have a counterpart in the suburbs, even though maybe suburban um, voters see themselves as entirely different, but is it more similar than not, I guess, is, is my question. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there might be some similarities in that the, the kind of the home ownership model, um, but also this kind of, as we said already, transient home ownership model where not only are you buying a home, you're going to live there for a while, but you're already thinking of turning it around as, as an investment, right? So it's it's almost more of a, well, like a mutual fund than a, than a home, it kind of raises the question as to whether condominiums are perhaps a kind of depoliticizing force, right, in that people um, buy into them for, for perhaps primarily economic purposes, and then protecting that investment is going to be um, the central concern. And we could compare that to suburbia, where we tend to see that people, um, it's believed that people become more conservative as they become homeowners. Not only do they have to manage their own you know, lifelong debt to a bank in terms of their mortgage, but they also want to protect those property values and so things that are seen as um, you know, potentially controversial land uses and so on come up against a lot of resistance. So we might see a similar trend with condominiums where, where people 
um, become less interested in perhaps social justice issues or diversity, multiculturalism or whatever, and, and just seek to protect the value of of that investment on the ground. And I think then, you know, the, the broader implication there is that um, there's a very individualized rationale behind that, right, that people are sort of being encouraged to think in very individualistic terms. And not that I think that all condo owners are somehow naturally predatory and individualistic, but the form of housing itself kind of encourages that mentality, right? And so that was sort of this argument that I was trying to make, that a neoliberal um, rationality around being self-sufficient and autonomous and protecting yourself and creating wealth and investment and so on is kind of trickling down into um, the identity of, of the condo owner, whether they want it to or not, really. And so the idea that if you have this uh, a city that's encouraging this sense of pure self-sufficiency, protect your own investment, take care of yourself, protect your own living space, be secure, and so on, then is there any incentive to argue for those things collectively, right? Is there any incentive to join social movements, for example, that try to make the city safer for women in general, in a broad sense, or is it about just finding a living space where you can feel safe because there's a security guard? So I think there are broader implications then in terms of social justice movements, who's likely to be involved in them, the extent to which people are likely to care about the issues that extend beyond the walls of the condominium or the condominium courtyard. So bigger questions then, as you say, about sort of citizenship, social solidarity, building strong neighborhoods. Um, I, I don't want to be overly pessimistic. I, I don't think it's impossible that condo owners or that condos can be good neighbors and, and, and be good urban citizens. But the, the form, the economic form, the physical form, and so on, I think present some strong challenges for that to actually happen. And just to add on to that, and, and then we'll conclude, um, if we are to look to these challenges and address them, um, how how might a feminist analysis or uh, gendering a lot of the processes um, within um, neoliberal cities or neoliberalizing cities, um, how might this help address some of these questions in a way that um, is provides um, some some opportunities for um, imaginative and and perhaps even emancipatory thinking? Yeah, great question. So I guess there's two things that I would say to that. One is that the the feminist lens can kind of unpack what exactly is being proposed as a kind of emancipation. So if it's all about becoming um, a conservative property owner who engages in conspicuous consumption on the city streets, then maybe we can say, oh, well, actually that's maybe not totally the vision of urban living and urban life and urban communities that we're wanting to promote, and we could uh, also perhaps show with the feminist lens how there isn't really much in that that's particularly liberatory for women. In fact, it goes back to very traditional, old-fashioned notions about what women's role in the city was, was sort of to be watched, um, to be seen, to shop, to, the, to do those sorts of things. Um, the second thing that I think a, a feminist lens asks us to do is to really look beyond what condos mean for the condo owners, right, who are a relatively privileged subset of people in the city, and to think about um, 
how this is affecting the lives of people who are experiencing other forms of marginalization. So the people, for example, living in those inner suburbs that uh, have had decreasing household income levels, right, that are increasingly poor, where uh, recent immigrants are, excuse me, now more likely to settle, people working in the service economy for low wages, single parents and so on, who are sort of being pushed out of the core and who are unable to feel many of those benefits of this supposedly emancipatory project. So the feminist funds ask us to take a sort of intersectional approach to say, okay, well, um, we're not just looking at women or at this one particular group of women, but we need to see how this is affecting people across a broad range of social differences and, and social classes and so on. Okay. Sex in the Revitalized City, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship. Uh, a, a wonderfully engaging read. Can you tell me uh, what your current... And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. It's also available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Check out lots of uh, past uh, podcasts on that site and uh, other great stuff. Again, that's uh, thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and uh, that about does it for this hour of Critical Urban Discussions. And uh, you're listening to a discussion with uh, Dr. Leslie Kern, and she is uh, uh, currently uh, Assistant Professor of Gender uh, Studies at Mount Allison University, and she's also author 
of sex in the revitalized city, gender, condominium development, and urban citizenship. And that was largely um, what my conversation with uh, Dr. Leslie Kern was structured around, was um, her, the research that went into the book, looking at, um, as it's uh, probably quite obvious, um, the rise of uh, condominium development um, as a form of property ownership, but also the implications about how that shapes uh, the city in turn. And uh, again, if you missed any part of that, uh, again, go to the website, thecityfm.org. We're going to finish off the show um, with um, some uh, PSAs, but if you're listening uh, on CITR Live um, here on Tuesday, 5 to 6 p.m., you've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6. And if you're uh, tuning in, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, Burnaby, uh, you've got Democracy Now! coming on next at 11 a.m. And again, uh, we're syndicated on CJSF on Fridays from 10 to 11 and um, as I mentioned, all of this um, is available at thecityfm.org. Check out the Facebook site as well by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. And also uh, be sure to follow the program on uh, Twitter with the handle the city underscore FM. And uh, we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Uh, lots to come in coming weeks. Uh, thank you as always uh, for tuning in and have a wonderful week.